Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. This is pretty interesting. You know, it, it, I think this is maybe only the third or fourth time we've had the uh, chance to do this where we had a guest that I spoke to way, way, way back in the day. Back so, when you had hair. Yes. Th- this interview that we're about to play as a lead-in to our guest, Neil Allen, was done in 1982. Um, it's interesting. It was on a reel-to-reel recorder, right? No, it was on a cassette. Um, but it, it's interesting to... Here's some of the names uh, mentioned towards the end of the interview. And if I remember correctly, this was for a special we were doing. The Mets um, logo at the time, the Mets public relations push that time was the magic is back. Right. And it really wasn't. And you'll hear uh, Neil Allen at the end emphatically talk about it. So uh, we'll play this. And then while we're playing this, we'll get Neil on the phone and we'll go directly into our interview with Neil. So this is uh, from July of 1982, uh, me and Neil Allen. Last time we were talking, you were living at your mother's house during the strike. Gee, yeah. That's right, man. Last time I was there, food was free, man. That's, that's exactly what you said. Paying bills and everything. Again. All right. How do you feel about the Mets' position through the first half of the season? I think that we started out really good, and uh, you know we had a lot of people thinking that we were going to do a hell of a lot better than we did. Um, right now, uh, we've had a few big letdowns in certain key situations, and uh, uh, our pitching hasn't been all the things it has. A few key hitters haven't come through that we really need. I think that what we've got to do is we've got to regroup over the All-Star break and start out from scratch after the season so we can turn this thing around, because right now we're, we're on an upward drive, and uh, we're just stuck on the hill. We can't get over it. All right, what about your own personal performance the first half? I was very happy until the, the sickness came along. I, you know, I was going along fine. I was throwing the ball well, and... Uh, the sickness got me. I've been weak and I've been struggling ever since. But I feel that I'm just about as possibly close as you can be to being back to 110% again. And I feel that uh, by the All-Star break, I will be ready. What do you think the Mets' strong points have been thus far? Well, I think that the, the strong points really it's just been a team effort more or less in key situations like on the day that the pitching was struggling some hitters came through and vice versa and that's the way it's got to be but as of lately there hasn't been no hitting or pitching and you can't win ball games without either one of them. What do you think the weak points have been? I think that right now our pitching has been uh, has been very uh, weak at the especially the last few weeks it's been uh, letting us down an awful lot and like I mentioned before we've had, we've got a few hitters that we've got to have hitting in this lineup and without them and we're in trouble, and they've got to break out and come out of the sump that they're in also. In the beginning of the season, the middle infield was a big question mark with the rookies Ron Gardenhire and Wally Backman taking over. How do you think they performed so far? I think that Ron Gardenhire and Wally Backman were underrated very much in the spring training. Uh, I know that they're very young, and they, and they were both rookies coming in, and it's hard to put a rookie in that situation. But they did do the job. They did come out of it, and I think that they're going to be super if, once it gets this first year out of the way. What expectations do you have for yourself for the second half of the season? Neil Allen, I'm shooting for 30 saves. That's my goal. That's I want to break this record here at Shea Stadium, and I want to have a hell of a year. I didn't get picked for the All-Star team or nothing like that, so what I'm going to be gunning for now is probably the – 
you know the Roll Age Relief Pitcher of the Year. Uh, what do you hope to accomplish with the team at the Mets on a whole for this coming season? This ball club, if they can just play 500 baseball, if they can end up a little 500 or over, I feel that we've done something. We've come up a long ways from last year and the years before. Nobody's as sick and sorry of losing as I am, and I'm sure the New York fans are sick and tired of it. So we just got to start winning because it ain't no picnic around here, and things have got to change pretty quick. Do you think the magic is back, or in other words, are the Mets a team to be reckoned with? I don't really know how to accept that the magic is back statement. That thing, uh, you know, it's something that they've got to say. I guess they've got to start a slogan somewhere in some direction. I'm not really sold on that slogan at all. Um, I just want to go out and win some games and the hell with the slogan of the magic is back. Okay, Neil, thanks a lot. Also, last time, we talked about you throwing the ball over John Stern's head. You haven't been doing that. You do that. <laughs> I get might the do streak that going. You told me you, you were going for a while. You couldn't get your mother out. So you tried and you started getting saved. <laughs> going, right. Bill? Joining us now is the man whose voice you just heard from 37 years ago. Hard to believe. Uh, he was drafted out of Bishop Ward High School in Kansas City in the 11th round of the 1976 Major League Baseball draft. And in just his second professional season, he went 10-2 with a 2.79 earned run average, led the Carolina League with 126 strikeouts with the Lynchburg Mets. He came up with the Mets as a starting pitcher in 1979. He made his Major League debut on April 15th against the Philadelphia Phillies. The Mets then moved him to the bullpen later that season, and on July 28th, he earned his first of his 75 Major League saves. It is a thrill to welcome Neil Allen to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Neil. Hi, guys. How you doing? Doing good. You know, it, it's so strange. We just played that interview from, from July of 1982, and, you know, it got to me to thinking. I had the opportunity to talk to you a lot when you played for the Mets in the 80s, and I remember how much credit you gave your parents for your career. So can you tell our audience a little bit about your dad, Bob, who was actually legally blind but played a huge role in your life, especially since his passion was baseball? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, back home in, in, in the neighborhood that I grew up in the stuff, he was, uh, we all had one glove in the neighborhood. I mean, in the family, excuse me. And we all played sports in the neighborhood on different teams, but being my brothers and stuff. And I remember a couple of times he told my other brother, he said, you're not going to play tonight because he's got a pitch <laughs> and we need him to play. <laughs> and, but, uh, no, he was, uh, he was a, a man that, uh, he developed retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, when I was very, very young, two or three years old, and then he was blind before I really know it. My brothers remember him seeing. I don't remember uh, much about that. But, uh, no, he would come to my uh, games in the summertime, and he would put me on a rhythm pattern. If I walked a guy, he would say, you're taking too much time, because he was set behind the little home plate area where you got the screens right there. He could hear the pop of the glove, and if it took over 12 or 13 seconds, he'd yell at me for tempo and, and just things like that. And, uh, he was just always there to, you know, to support me and be there. And, uh, you know, that, that in itself, uh, just having a father to go home to every night and talk to and a mother to go home and talk to every night, it was just wonderful having a family that, I, that, that loved me and supported me and was in my corner all the time. You know, it's so cool because AJ and I over the years have seen, you know, certain moments in an athlete's career change the way you know, their careers turn out. And for you, uh, you were a standout quarterback in your high school football team, and it looked like you were headed to Kansas State University on a football scholarship. But that all changed in the spring of your senior year in 1976. One game you were matched up against Terry Sutcliffe, the younger brother of future major leaguer Rick Sutcliffe, who was a pitching rival for Van Horn High School. What impact did that one particular game have on your career? 
Oh, well, it was, it's everything, actually. It's uh, why we're even having this conversation. I forget how many, how many years ago you said that, 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 uh, that, uh, that you just aired on the air right there was what, 30 some years ago. 30 and, years. um, without, without me pitching against Rick Sutcliffe's little brother, Terry Sutcliffe, we're not even having this conversation tonight because all the scouts were there to watch Rick Sutcliffe's little brother, who at the time was a big baseball prospect in the Kansas City area. And, uh, anyway, long story short, I was a, uh, you know, a young kid, a sophomore or something like that. And he was a senior, he was older than me. And, uh, our big star pitcher, I remember got hurt and they go, you're pitching tonight. And I said, okay. So I got, you know, got the field and I'm pitching and I'm warming up and I see a bunch of people Well, in Kansas city in the fall or in the springtime, it's really cool and kind of cold. And you don't, there's not many people at the ballpark. And we had no grass infield. It was all dirt infields. And there just wasn't nobody at the ball game for high school baseball back then. And on this particular day, there was, oh, guys, there must have been 50, 60 people, which was a big event for a baseball game and a high school game in Kansas City. And it was cold. And, and I go, what the heck's going on? And they go, see that guy you're pitching against? I go, yeah. And they go, he's Rick Suckless' little brother, and he's real good. And everybody says he's going to go number one in the draft and all this. They go, oh, okay. So I didn't think nothing of it because I knew I was going to play football and I had my scholarship signed and I was gone. Anyway, I pitched against him and uh, we ended up beating him like one to nothing. I think he struck out 18 or something. I struck out like 18. It was, it was just one of those nights where everything just went well and ended up beating him. And then uh, my parents, I get home that night and they had a bunch of cards. Uh, and they were telling me that these scouts gave them these cards. And I go, for what? <laughs> and I didn't even pay attention to high school baseball. I didn't. I just played it because my parents said that you're going to play a spring sport because you're not going to hang out with them so-called friends that are thugs. <laughs> <laughs> and to keep me on the straight and narrow and keep me off the streets and things like that. So that's the only reason I played high school baseball. Amazing. And uh, so with that being said, um, here we are having this conversation many, many years later. I beat the kid. I got drafted by the New York Mets, and the rest is history. Well, your father also played a role in your decision whether to go to baseball or football, didn't he? Absolutely. We uh, we had this. I mean, I didn't even think I was going to have this dilemma. And then I get this phone call, and uh, I was actually at the gym working out and lifting weights and stuff to get ready to go play football when the June draft came. And uh, I get a phone call at the gym. My dad says, you need to come home. You've been drafted. And at first, I'm like, Drafted for what? What are you talking about? And uh, he told me that I'd been drafted by the New York Mets in the 11th round. And so I, I'm like, what? So I go home and, you know, we were sitting there. And uh, we always had a, a close-knit family, as we still do. Um, and we had a little sit-down with the family. And um, me and my brothers and my mom and dad. And, and my dad just flat told me. He goes, Neil, you do not like academics. It's everything we had to make you study for tests and keep you eligible to play high school sports. And uh, he said, you go off to K-State, and he goes, let's just say you break your shoulder, bust up your elbow, and then you can't even throw a baseball or a football. He goes, why don't we do this? Why don't we call the coach at K-State? And he goes, let's give it a year or two. And you can generally know or feel if you have the ability to compete with these guys from all around the world that you're going to be playing with. And if you don't think that it's for you and it's not going to happen, then you go on back to school. 
and you can always go back and play college football. But he goes, this is an opportunity that doesn't come down the avenue every day. So with that being said, I uh, called the coach at Kansas State, told him what my decision was, and that I was going to give it a couple years. And he told me, he goes, well, Neil, I can't hold your scholarship, but what I will do is if it doesn't work out, you can come back as a walk-on. If we still like your skills, then we'll give you your scholarship back. So that's how it came about. That's what happened. So actually when I would have been a junior at Kansas State, is when I arrived in New York. Absolutely amazing. So, you know, you got drafted by the Mets. You made that decision. The Mets send you to Marion in the rookie le- uh, league, Appalachian League, where you appeared in six games. You get two wins, strike out 29 batters in 33 innings, get you moved up to Warsaw Mets of the Midwest League, Class A. Your manager there is Bill Mamboquet. From there, it's Lynchburg under Jack Aker. Those are two former veteran pitchers that put many years in the majors. How important were they to your development as a pitcher? And of all your minor league managers and coaches, who was the one that had the biggest impact on you? Well, I would say that coming along, Bill Mamboquet was a very tough, hard-nosed, old-school guy. He taught me how to be aggressive uh, inside to both sides of the plate. In other words, if you don't move feet, you can't, because I threw a lot of strikes and I was out over the plate. And if I gave up hits, it was because I didn't get respect from the hitters, because they knew I'd be over the plate. And as a young kid, all you're thinking about is throwing strikes. You don't take into play about getting people off, elevating, using the four quadrants with your fastball, you know, up and in, down the way, things like that. Well, Bill Mamboquet taught me that. How to be aggressive with my fastball, how to get people off the plate, when to get people off the plate, and why to get people off the plate. Then I went on to Jack Aker, and Jack Aker taught me how to utilize my pitches after I get people off the plate. So the two of them really were outstanding components in, in, in the, the way that I learned how to pitch when I was a young 18-, 19-year-old kid. And, uh, and then I went on, like you said, to uh, AA and AAA, and, and uh, in 79 went to spring training with the big club and, and made the big club. But when I got to the, to the major leagues, there was, you know, there was just uh, – at that time, a rookie was to be seen and not heard. Uh, you don't talk if you're a rookie. Um, I remember getting on the bus and carrying four and five briefcases to the bus, and you just kept your mouth shut, and you took, you carried the guy's briefcases, and you did this, and you did that. You didn't, you didn't talk. You were to be seen, not heard. And um, but when I got there, it was it was kind of uh, Craig Swan was a veteran type guy when I was there, and and. Um, I just watched how these guys went about their their business. I mean, Skip Lockwood was there uh, when I first arrived. Um, just some guys that had been around a while, and I watched how they went about their business, how they worked. And again, you kept your mouth shut, so you didn't have nothing else to do but to watch and learn. And so I just kind of watched these guys that how they went about their business and what they did, and just tried to you know, be a, be as good as a, a young, quiet teammate as I could be, but yet at the same time, I wanted to be a professional and, and, and be like those guys. Hey, Neil, this is Ryan Sherman. So I just, I would love to pick your brain about, you mentioned the developing as a pitcher, as a young pitcher, and it taking, you know, not just one, but multiple teachers and, and different methods to become a pitcher and not just a thrower. And not to get too into today's game, but as pitching becomes just as important as in October, you can get to October with offense, but you need the pitching. What would you suggest with all of the information coming these pitchers' way, these young players' way about how to get better? What do you think, how do they you know, transform all of this information into effectiveness? 
Well, you know, I was in seven in seventeen. I was with the the Minnesota Twins, and I was the pitching coach. And uh, we were playing the Yankees in the wild card game. Again, and I remember the information and the the stuff that come down from upstairs in regards to how you're going to pitch the New York Yankees, how you're going to pitch Darren Judge, how we're going to pitch the uh, uh, you know all D.D. Gregorius, how we're going to pitch to this one now. And during the course of the season, we had quite a bit of information that would come down before every series. And then when it came time for the playoffs, I remember. I was flabbergasted because the information came down, and I'm meaning like I normally get 50, 60 pages. For the playoff game against the New York Yankees, I probably got 150 pages. Now, what dramatically changed from when we played the Yankees a month or two earlier (laughs) that I've got to double up my information to give to my pitching staff to get prepared for a playoff game? With that being said, you can only give so many uh, pitchers so much information. And when you start doubling up on information and just compiling it and compiling it and making it more difficult for them to retain and retain 150 pages worth of information, it's, it's almost ridiculous for me to comprehend that. With that being said, I try to keep it and condense it down to something much more simple. Keep the game simple. I mean, I was getting backup spin rates, forward spin rates, rise rates. I mean, just things that were beyond the game of pitching, of baseball. And I got so frustrated for these kids because they got so overwhelmed. And the information that I gave them to go to the bullpen with for the relievers to be prepared when this guy comes up, this is the way we're going to pitch this guy and that guy and stuff. And they'd be in the bullpen. And I remember even asking my bullpen coach, were they overwhelmed out there? He goes, Neil, yeah. And I go, because this information that we got went from, like I said, 50, 60 pages to 150 pages. Now, what in the world changed the game in a matter of two months when we last saw the New York Yankees that we've got over 60 new pages of information along with what we had previously? Now, I don't know about you guys, but when you get into a routine of the course of a season of six and seven months, and you get a team prepared mentally as well as physically to face this team and face that team. And then all of a sudden, yes, it's the biggest game of the year. And, yes, it's the biggest game of a lot of these guys' career. And, yes, it's going to be the last big game of some of these guys' career. But why are we changing who we were that got us here? All of a sudden, the information that we retained and we got and we took into war for six months wasn't enough. We were going to do more. So we got a lot of kids confused. There was pitches that weren't executed, wrong pitches we we made. We ended up losing the ball game eight to four. But to this day, that was two years ago, and here it is two years in October, and I'm watching the Twins right now for the New York Yankees, and I'm pretty much seeing the same results that I saw when I was the pitching coach. <laughs> so with that being said, I'm just saying that we can't overwhelm these young pitchers. They worked so hard during the course of the year to get to this point. And then when we got to the playoffs, we changed our attitude, we changed who we were, we changed our identity to try to outsmart the other team, and it didn't work. You know, it's so interesting. So what I guess I'm just saying is that we've got to keep it simple and don't try to overload information to people then just overwhelm them. You know, it's so interesting you, you said that because as you're saying that, I just got a flashback to, I think, 1981, sitting in a dugout with you, 
asking about what attributes a reliever needs. And, and you know, and it, it stuck with me forever because just the way you said it, I, I think it was maybe the first time I ever heard the word used, you said you have to have this loosey-goosey type attitude, never get too high, never get too low. And, you know, you had a string where you uh, lost four games in relief, two consecutive in walk-off against the Phillies, a, a grand slam, if I remember, to Bo Diaz. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yep. And when you were just talking about all that information, for some reason, I, I flash back to that conversation and thought about Edwin Diaz this year. And yep. So if you were his pitching coach, you know, obviously you then went out after those two bad defeats. I, uh, I think you reeled off, uh, you know, four wins in a row after that and, and saves. How do you, especially in the biggest moment, you know, if you're a twin reliever or a Yankee reliever, how do you regain that confidence? You know, forget about spin rate, forget about, you know, placement. As a reliever, how important is that confidence? And, to, and how do you maintain that loosey-goosey type attitude on the biggest stage? Well, first of all, you're trained. You don't just come into it. You've got a course of a season to get you to that point. In the Diaz situation and in the Neil Allen situation, uh, those are things that come with experience, come with time. I had a little time under my belt. He's got a little time under his belt. Everybody deals with uh, controversy and, and tough times in their own way. But as a coach, to me, to go up to Edwin Diaz, I would have to pat him on the ass every day. But then again, I got to know when to kick him in the ass. I got to know when to pat him on the ass. I got to know when to sit him down and talk to him. Everybody's got different personalities. You got 25 different personalities. What might work for Craig Swan won't work for Neil Allen. What might work for Neil Allen may not work for Edwin Diaz. But I do know that you got to be supportive and you got to make sure that you know he knows that you care about him. And when he knows you care, because see, you can't you can't have coaches that like maybe doubt you a little bit and then let that kid feel that you're doubting because then right away he's going to say, i got to make this picture. Boy, they're really going to be down on me now. I never let a kid see that. Never let a kid know that. Let, never let him even think I'm feeling that. I want him to always know I'm in his corner, irregardless of what's happening because inside you'll go through a wall for that guy knowing that he cares about you and your success. You know, Neil, you played for – Two pitchers in the minor leagues, Bill Mabuquette and Jack Aker. In the major leagues, you also played for George Bamberger, former pitcher. There was a knock, you know, maybe unfair on pitchers as managers, that they don't see enough of the game to fully understand strategy and make moves in the games. That was one of the criticisms of Mickey Calloway, who was released by the Mets this past week. Is that true? Is, is there a difference? You know, the common wisdom also was catchers because they see so much of the game make good managers. What's your thoughts about that, whether pitchers do make good managers or catchers have an advantage because they see more of the game? I'll be very honest with you. I, I don't think the pitchers are near, uh, they don't near have, they don't absorb the knowledge, maintain the knowledge, and distribute the knowledge the way a catcher does. Catchers have a way of coming. Now, keep in mind, they handle 10 to 12 pitchers. And every time that the pitcher comes in, they talk about, what was working that night, what isn't working on that night, when this guy comes in and stuff like that. They know this pitcher stuff. They retain things. They utilize things better than a pitcher does. We come in, we listen to them. And to me, I know the pitcher's always been considered the quarterback of the field. I don't feel that way. I like my catcher to come out and tell me what's working earlier. Yes, we watch the game from the bullpen. And yes, my breaking ball may be different than your breaking ball or 
my breaking ball may be different than this guy's breaking ball. But my catcher knows my breaking ball as opposed to other guys. Will mine work? He'll let me know that. So when people talk about quarterback and the pitcher, the only thing I do is I control the game. People can't go to the bathroom. They want to see that bases loaded, three and two count, and I step off and get booed. They don't go to the bathroom. They don't go buy a beer. They don't buy a hot dog. They don't do nothing until I get back on the mound and make that pitch. That's what I control. But what I do know is that when I come into a situation and that catcher has been there, he's been there maybe for two nights against that team, maybe just seven or eight innings till I got in there that night, he's going to tell me what was utilized, how it was utilized, is my breaking ball better than this guy's breaking ball, can we get away with it, can we not get away with it. Those are the things that a catcher can give you. So when you're talking about a guy that sees more of the game, takes uh, more, how do I say it, uh, he takes more into what's happening at that particular moment with your stuff, no, it's the catcher for me that is the quarterback because I trust him telling me what he feels my stuff's going to do against this guy in a big, big situation. And they carry that over into being good managers. They retain things that pitchers don't. Yes, we can monitor a pitcher on what we should and shouldn't throw and what we feel we should and shouldn't throw. But the catchers, they see the outfielders moving around. They see the infield playing over three steps this way, three steps that way. How's Neil's breaking ball going to work with that? And these are the things that I count on as a catcher, and that's why I feel that catchers make way better managers than a pitcher. Interesting. So there's, there's an interesting jumping-off point there with if you look at the 1985 Yankees and the managerial change that they made uh, 16 games in with Yogi Berra. He was 6-10, and 10, and we're talking about a catcher making a great manager and, and Mark and AJ's book coming up. He's not 85. 65. 65, okay, so... No, right here. I'm, I'm on baseball. Okay, but keep, but keep going. But to the, to the point that you had been made before that I found really interesting is when a manager needs to take control of a roster, the 25 men, as an individual year. You know, these are the 25 this year. I need to handle them this way. These are the 25 this, this year. I need to do it this way. So going back to the Mets of this year, what do you think of Mickey Calloway's job and the firing, and who would you say moving forward is someone you like? Doggone it. You know, in my heart, uh, I'm, I'm always going to be a Met. They were the ones that gave me an opportunity and gave me a chance to have the career that I had and, and, and live the, the nice life that I enjoy because of the New York Mets. That's, and I, and I, they'll always be special in my heart. But when it comes to, you know, you've got you to register who you've got there. You've got to register the mentality of the players you've got there. You've got to recognize, do we have a lot of veterans? Do we have a lot of youth? Do we got a little bit of both? Um, from from what I see out there, there's a lot of managerial candidates out there right now. Um, I don't know how analytical the New York Mets are. I don't know if they're you know just sub sub uh, analytical. Are they full blown analytical? Um, these are the questions that come into hiring a manager today. How that manager is going to handle analytics? How that manager is going to utilize his analytics to make the players better on the field? But also how he's going to relate that information to them. Um, again, and that all comes into play with the caliber of players that you have and, and uh, how many veterans you got, how many guys have been around two or three years, how many guys are coming new. Um, your pitching staff, is it a veteran pitching staff? Is it guys that's been around a while? Well, yeah, you've got guys that's been around a while. So you've got to hire a guy that's going to be able to relate to some veterans just simply because of your pitching staff and you've got some older gentlemen They've been around the league a little bit, had a lot of success. So, you know, you've got to weigh the, the, uh, what you've got on the field 
are they veteran guys, younger guys? You've got to weigh your pitching staff. Are they older guys, younger guys? And we've got to find a guy that can gel and work with both of them as well as utilize the analytics that are a big, huge monster part of the game today. And it's also interesting, too. You take a look at some of the pitchers you worked with in the minors, and it's an impressive list. David Price, Wade Davis, uh, Jeremy Hellickson, Jake McGee, Alex Cobb, Chris Archer, and Matt Moore. You moved to the major leagues, and you have some veteran guys. Uh, when you were with the Twins, there was a 32-year-old Irvin Santana. How different is it in the minor leagues? You know, I'm, I'm assuming that they're much more receptive to you, telling them what to do because they're really trying to get to the majors, whereas a guy who might have had success in the majors it might be a little resonant to change, even though you might see something. What's the difference between a pitching coach in the minor leagues and then at the major league level? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. At the AAA level, the guys are still a half step away. They haven't been there yet. They'll still go through walls for you. They'll try anything that you give them, and they'll 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 make it. They'll they'll do whatever they possibly can to make it work. What we're trying to utilize to help them get to the major leagues. And like I tell them, I go, "Hey, you are half a step away from the major leagues. Now you can stay here with me in AAA, and you can ride the buses everywhere, or you can execute and do what we're trying to get done and get on the back of the airplanes. It's up to you." And those kids get that, and they realize that. And I said, I promise you that your bank account's going to look a little bit better (laughs) in the major leagues than it does in AAA and internationally. And so with that being said, and you mention those kind of things to them, they'll go through walls for you. And when you get to the major leagues, and you got a guy like Irvin Santana, who's had tremendous amount of success, probably on the downside of his career, and... How do I get him to listen to me in regards to something we're trying to uh, get done? We sit down and look at the film. He knows he's not being successful. He's been successful. He's been through peaks and valleys in his career. But why is it that we've hit a bump in the road here for about two, three weeks and two or three starts? Well, let's go to the film. Let's see what we're doing. Are we overstriding? Are we opening up? Are we getting under the ball? Are we getting around the ball? What are we doing? Is our shoulders opening up? Are we staying tall? Are we getting under it? All these kind of things come into play. You hit the film, and what I do is I hit the film by myself before he even gets to the ballpark hours and hours before to see if I see anything done. And I'll have two screens there. I'll have a successful screen where he's been throwing the ball very well and a screen for his last three or four starts where he hasn't been throwing the ball very well. And I'm looking for things. Just create, you know, just two or three little ingredients that's going to tell me is his stride longer or what's he doing right here. Is he, is he coming out of the glove late? Is his arm drag? And what you do is you find that on film when you have a veteran, and I'm talking about a guy 8, 9, 10, 11 years, whatever, you know, been around a while. You don't tell them to do this. You suggest, look what I found. They respect you for that because they haven't been there 8 or 9 or 10 years before you came along if they weren't doing something right. So I'm not going to tell this guy, you need to do this or you need to do that. I'm going to get evidence to show him what I found on film, and then I'm going to just make a strong suggestion, hey, look what's going on right here. What do you think? They respect that. I'm not telling him what to do. I'm suggesting, look what I found on film. And that's how you approach a veteran. And them guys know that you got there early, four and five hours early that day, to look at film to try and make them better. And yet they've been at it 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years, some of them, and you're there to make them better because you don't want to see them struggle or your team struggle. So you're going to do your job to find out 
what's causing this veteran guy to get the ball up in the zone? Or what's going on with this release point? That he's getting hit so hard in the last two or three outings. And they will respect you for that because I didn't all of a sudden just come and tell a veteran of 10 years, you need to do this or you need to do that. No, 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 no. I'm going to find evidence as to why this is going on. And then we're going to sit down together and look at the film, and they'll respect you for that tremendously. It's funny because when we had David Cohn on, he had talked about all the technology available to pitchers today, and he said had he had that technology available to him, he would have been even a better pitcher. What do you think? If you had the technology that's available today while you were playing, how much more effective do you think you would have been as a pitcher? Oh, I think that there's a lot of it that's very effective. I think that there's a lot of it that you can utilize that would have made us all better pitchers. But I also think there's a lot of stuff that could be overkill. Just like I stated earlier about the information that I got when I was with the Minnesota Twins. You can go from 50-page scouting report to 100-page scouting report in two months' time. Now, what in the world has changed that we've doubled up on that information? And, I mean, you've got to be a Rhodes Scholar (laughs) to retain it all. Absolutely. And so, to me, and getting back to, like, another comment that you said to me a little bit ago when you said about keeping it simple. And... I'm not saying that we don't take the information that's out there for us today that's provided for us, but it's wonderful information. I would have loved to have had something, but condense it down for yourself to what works for you. Don't try to retain 100 pages. It's not for you. It might be for some guys from Harvard or Oxford, <laughs> but it certainly isn't for a New York Mets pitcher or, or, or you know, a, a kid in double A. But you take the report, you read it, then you write notes down on your own, and then you just utilize what you can from it. But you can't expect a young kid or a veteran guy because the game's changed really dramatically the last few years with the spin rates and all this stuff to take that stuff and run with it. They can't do it. They cannot retain that and take that to the map. I see guys in the middle of an inning now, and they're taking their hats off to look at the scouting report. In the outfield, too. Absolutely. There you go. Outfield, too. Now, outfield... That's a whole different deal. But when I'm pitching, I got first and second, and they announce a pinch hitter coming up. Am I going to take my hat off to look and see what I want to throw this guy? First pitch, one and one, maybe two one behind the count. What's he been hit? I've got to know this by doing my scouting report and doing my reviews and, and stuff and watching my film. But you get me out there, and I got to take my hat off to look at what we discussed maybe two days ago in the scouting report. Or maybe eight hours ago on this scouting report, I, I just I have a hard time with that. To me, that tells me I've given you way too much information to not focus on the hitter at hand right now. You sound like someone who misses it. Would you like to be back as a pitching coach somewhere? Oh yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. No, I I've been out now two years. Yep. And uh, I would love, love, love to get the opportunity again. I really, really would. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. If the phone rings this winter, I'll be thrilled to death. So and would if we. it doesn't, I get it. So would we. <laughs> all right, so you. big question before we let you go. Twins-Yankees, all right, who are you rooting for in that series as you, you worked with both of them? <laughs> you know what? I, I, I love them both. Um, <laughs> like you said, I work for both of them, and I've got to be very delicate in this answer. <laughs> but you know what? I got those kids that I coached up there. I was up there with them for three years, and – uh, I've got I've got really really close to a few of them, and I'm really pulling for some of these kids to really really do well. I really am, but I know that they're 
running up against a machine, and it's a fine-tuned machine. And uh, you better just be on point if you're going to be successful against the New York end. All right, Neil, so I just did the quick math, and, and 37 years from now I'll be 96, so I don't want to wait until <laughs> right. I'm 96 to have another interview with you. We'll speak again <laughs> soon. And also, I, and I promised him I'd say this, Pete Falcone wanted me to say hi to you. He made sure he said, please to send Neil my best. That's from Pete Falcone. I saw Pete in Houston. He's the guy that does the cameras and stuff like that uh, down there during the games and stuff. When we got a, when we call a check upstairs, you know, back in New York, Pete's the one that has the video replay. Yeah, yeah. And so I got to see Pete, and it was wonderful seeing him. And and uh, that was the neat thing about being a big league coach again and stuff because you get to run into all a whole bunch of old teammates that you had everywhere. So that was really enjoyable, and I miss seeing those guys too. All right, Neil, be good. Thanks so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. You got it, guys. Take care, and thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Neil Allen, former Met, former Yankee, great guy. Again, you know, for those that don't remember, the, the key part in the Keith Hernandez right. trade also.